Hi, I'm Carmen LaBurge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBurge on Faith Radio. morning. It is Monday. Uh, Let me lead off with some news for those of you in the Twin Cities. The name of Sid Hartman is synonymous in the Twin Cities for many people with radio, talk radio, and uh, a trusted voice over the airwaves. Um, Sid served for decades, decades at MCCO uh, in the Twin Cities, and we just want to celebrate his life and inform you today that at the the ripe old age of 100 years, uh, he has he has left this world, and we trust uh, entered entered the presence of the living God. But the only the only way to know that the only way to know where you're going to spend eternity is to actually receive the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And so, let me encourage you if you haven't if you haven't done that business with God, um, there's no better time than right now. God loves you. Jesus loves you. Um, the redemption is available. If you're hurting, if you're feeling hopeless, if you are discouraged. Um, you recognize that uh, your sin has broken you not only against uh, other people, but against yourself and certainly against God. This is an opportunity for you to say yes uh, to God, to say, you know, yes, Father, I I recognize who you are. I recognize who I am. I recognize uh, the reality of my sinfulness, and I recognize the good gift of your grace in Jesus Christ, and I receive it. That's it. It's that simple. That is uh, that that is the whole um, that's the whole of it right there. So let me invite you to do that today if you've never done so. Uh, just have that conversation with God. Yes, it's called prayer, but you know, you're, if you're a person who says, "Well, I just I, I've never prayed before. I don't even know what that would look like." Well, that's pretty much what it looks like. It looks like you turning toward God and acknowledging that your life has been turned away from Him, and that you would like to be reconciled to Him. That you recognize the only way for that to happen is uh, by receiving the free gift of His grace in Jesus Christ. So uh, let me encourage you to do just that today if you've never done so. Um, a few headlines before we bring on Dr. Zach Jenkins to talk about uh, some of, of the COVID headlines. I'm actually going to touch on a couple of COVID headlines before we get to Zach, because these are uh, headlines that popped this morning. Um, we have a new statistic. Uh, well, I guess it's a it's survey findings. Um, so STAT, which is a an aggregator of all kinds of information related to health care and health awareness and health concerns in the United States. STAT uh, went in with the Harris poll to survey how Americans were responding to the possibility, the probability, actually, you know, sometime we're certainly going to have a COVID-19 vaccine. So when it's available, what percentage of people say they're they're prepared to take it? Well, fewer than 60 percent of people in the United States say they would be ready to get a COVID-19 vaccine when it's available. So um, in mid-August, that was like 70% of the population. So the decline in the willingness to get vaccinated uh, is pretty pronounced in the United States, very pronounced in the African-American community, apparently black individuals, um, less less prepared to get a COVID-19 vaccine um, than whites. 
Uh, only 43 percent of black people said that they were prepared to get a COVID-19 vaccine when it becomes available. That That's pretty um, that's pretty staggering, especially uh, acknowledging the disproportionate effect that the black community um, has had from COVID-19. Hospitalizations uh, are up around the country, or at least they're on the rise. Obviously, that is prompting concerns. And we're going to talk about some of those concerns with uh, Dr. Zach Jenkins in just a moment. One more uh, one more headline here, and this is in relationship to how vaccines have to be stored and the places around the world where that kind of storage is simply not available. So this has less to do with the United States of America or the rest of the developed world, and it has to do with the with the under underdeveloped parts of the world. And so despite um, enormous strides made globally in terms of maintaining uh, essential what's called the cold chain, there are some 3 billion people. Now, those 3 billion people are of the world's poorest, and they they live in places where there is not sufficient temperature-controlled storage um, in uh, that would be sufficient for a COVID-19 vaccination in those regions. And so from the factory to the syringe, the uh, there's a process in which the vaccines have to be refrigerated in order to stay potent and safe. And there is a growing concern um, among immunologists around the world and those who know what the delivery systems look like in much of the world, that there would be uh, some three billion people who would not have access to uh, to potent, safe vaccines, even when they become available, because there's just simply uh, not enough vaccine refrigerators with a reliable electricity and an infrastructure to do delivery uh, in much of the world. All right. Next up, Dr. Zach Jenkins from Cedarville University. We're going to cover some additional COVID headlines. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. It's good to have you back again. Oh, hey, well, joining me again today, Dr. Zach Jenkins from Cedarville University. Welcome back, Zach. Thanks for having me. Good morning. Yeah, good morning. Let's talk about this reinfection headline. What do we need to know about COVID-19 reinfection? So since the pandemic started, there had been some reports across the world of po- the possibility of reinfection wherein where someone attack the virus all of a sudden maybe a few weeks later a couple months later they suddenly get the virus again but we didn't really know what to make of it because we hadn't really seen anything like that in the majority of the western world recently here in the u.s there have actually been a few reports of reinfection um in one case someone actually was reported to have died from being reinfected with covid so i think the important takeaway here is it's not very common but it is a possibility. It's actually rare as far as I can tell. All right. And then um, let's talk about this global vaccine initiative of which the United States um, nor Russia are a part. But it does kind of look like everybody else is in. So the World Health Organization, they have this giant vaccine initiative where they're trying to get all these partner countries to come on board. So kind of all, all the world's resources can be pulled towards the development of a vaccine and then hopefully those countries can have things distributed. I, I think, as you pointed out earlier, there may be some limitations with being able to distribute that, though. Um, another concern, I think, that the U.S. and Russia have had is, well, if we participate in this worldwide vaccine effort, 
who gets the vaccine first. Hmm. And, and so that that's like one of the interesting conversations because everyone's going to want to have access to it. Um, and, and it definitely influences the local pandemic response as far as who gets it first in your country if you even get it first. So my my bel- belief and understanding is that's why the U.S. hasn't participated yet. Uh, still, the thought of, I think, people pooling resources together to solve the issue is one to kind of consider. All right. Um, I know that you are probably not even reading this headline yet. Um, I'm just now it just popped on my little news feed. Uh, Pfizer has released footage of a potential coronavirus vaccine rolling off the production line. Um, it aims to have 100 million doses ready by the end of the year. Uh, that that seems kind of surprising. Has it been approved? Like I oh, I guess they're seeking maybe seeking emergency use uh, in the U.S. by the end of November, something like that. Any other, I mean, yeah. I, right? I mean, like crazy, right? Seems seems surprising, but for them to be releasing footage of a production uh, line in action is probably going to be kind of exciting for people. Yeah, I mean, they're trying to roll this off the shelves as quickly as they can uh, because what they don't want to ro- walk into a situation, this is true for any company, is a situation where you have approval, but there's no product um, um, yeah. when, when you really need to get that distributed. So they're they're putting it out there, which is a bit of a risk to them because the FDA could easily say no. Uh, and that that's the thing that uh, I think we kind of have to pay attention to. But they seem pretty confident that they may have something there. So it's something to to watch, I would say. All right. That's something to watch. Um, all right. Uh, let's do one other headline before we have to take a brief break. Um, the development of a five minute antigen test. First of all, let's let's please remind us what is an antigen test um, and why is the news that there might be a five minute one kind of cool? As far as the difference goes between your types of tests available, you've got your PCR test, which is your molecular test, and that's probably the most accurate, but it takes a long time to come back. Um, In a lot of cases, the testing capacity has been backed up in in this situation, so that's been a problem. Um, The antibody tests that are out there don't really tell us a lot about if you have an active infection, but they tell us you've been exposed at some point. The problem with those is they have a high, high rate of false positives. Um, with antigen testing, what they do is they actually find a little piece of the virus, like a protein, and then they, they are very specific for it. And they say, well, this person has this virus um, most likely, and they're, they're rapid in that sense. But there's a chance that there may be some false positives, false negatives involved there. So, again, it's the fastest test out there, um, whether you're looking at 5 to 15 minutes, but it's not always the most accurate in and of itself still. A five-minute test is is pretty a pretty great prospect if you think about it. These are things that you can administer without the presence of a healthcare professional, and I, I think that that's that's pretty pretty important when you think about trying to return society to normal if you're trying to contain things. All right, Doctor Zach Jenkins and I are going to return in just a moment. He's going to tell me if my blood type helps me. <laughs> in in relationship to COVID. And so I'll just go ahead and tell you so that you can prep for your answer. I'm B positive, which does not surprise anybody because I am positive, right? So anyway, you are gonna you can tell me whether or not to be positive in terms of blood type is uh, of any benefit in this COVID-19 um, season. Dr. Zach Jenkins and I will be right back. Continue my conversation with Dr. Zach Jenkins from Cedarville University. 
covering as many COVID headlines as we can in this opening segment on this Monday morning. Um, all right, blood type, go. <laughs> so <laughs> early on in the pandemic, we had some preliminary data that suggested that perhaps someone's blood type may make them more prone to having severe infections with COVID. And there have been two studies that just dropped last week that seem to imply that that could be the case. Um, so, for example, right now, we the, the data is kind of pointing to people that have O-type blood. They may not necessarily be at as high of a risk of developing a severe response to the virus compared to those with AB or type A blood who seem to be a higher risk. So I would fall into that higher risk group myself. I have type A positive. Hmm. So that that's that's an interesting thing to consider. We're not really sure exactly why this occurs. We've seen it elsewhere. Uh, we know, for example, that type O people that have that tend to be a little bit more susceptible to cholera. So huh. it, it's something that's not completely unheard of. And and hopefully down the road, maybe we can use it for something like therapeutics or um, more research into how the virus functions. Do you think that people with type A personalities um, are disproportionately A plus, you know, A positive blood and, <laughs> and it's because they're like driving toward that all the time? See, the B positive people, we're pretty happy where we are. Okay, that's not I, related to today's. Wife, she'd probably tell you that that would be the case with me. <laughs> there you go. See, there you go. Okay, we have a um, we have a big global study that has found that remdesivir does not help COVID nineteen patients, which is contrary to what you have experienced right there in the front lines of healthcare. So, talk with us about uh, talk with us about this. Yeah, so that's it's a really interesting study. It was it was a very large study. Um, I think uh, what what they ended up finding is that there were no mortality benefits. And mm. they didn't see a benefit with changes in length of hospital stay. So that's that's an interesting kind of thing to contrast with what some of the other data has shown. An important takeaway is their trial was open label. And what that means is the doctors who were using the therapies knew what the therapies were. So that introduces a significant element of bias. And this wasn't just remdesivir they were looking at. They were looking actually at a lot of different therapies, including hydroxychloroquine. Um, and, and there were a few other things that haven't really hit the U.S. that they were using as well. But being open label, when you introduce that kind of bias, it, it definitely raises some questions. The, the difference, I would say, with the data we've seen here is they were randomized controlled trials uh, that were double-blind placebo-controlled. So, in other words, no one knew what anyone was getting at first. So you couldn't hmm. infer your own bias with how someone was responding. That That's at least the gold standard with, with when we think about things. But again, it raises good questions, and, and, and you can't rely on anecdotes. I mean, we've seen good results with our use. It's not a cure-all, but it helps um, when it's added to other things. But that doesn't mean that it's nothing more than just a, a unique observation we've seen that you know would mean it's true or not. You know what I mean? Yeah, Absolutely. Okay, this next um, this next headline I wanted to save us a couple of minutes to talk about. I'm looking at um, an an aggregate from uh, something called the Hospital CFO Report <clears throat> from Beckett Hospital Review that lists 47 hospitals that have already closed in the United States this year or filed for bankruptcy in 2020. Um, they are all literally all over the map um, for people in the Twin Cities. Two of them are in St. Paul. Um, I'm looking at another headline that says COVID-19 costs Ohio Valley hospitals billions, putting some rural hospitals at risk of closing. Um, what's going on uh, from your perspective in terms of um, 
hospitals, and maybe they already had some what we might think of as comorbidities in terms of an institution prior to COVID-19, but the COVID-19 has uh, has made it impossible for them to continue to serve their communities. You, you ask a good question, and I'm smack dab in the middle of that Ohio Valley region. Yeah. And uh, I'll tell you, about two weeks ago, uh, my health care system, they put out an announcement they're laying off about 3% of their employees. Um, and it's a rather large healthcare system too. So, so it puts in context, I think, the, the fact that hospital systems in general are struggling right now for a few reasons, one of which is they closed a lot of their uh, elective surgical procedures as we've kind of talked about before. And what they did is that, may, that actually limited one of those revenue streams that some of those institutions had. Um, they decreased you know, the, the influx of your typical patient preparing for what might be with COVID. Um, and these were in the early days when we didn't have all the data that we have now. And so I think it's these downstream consequences you're starting to see. That's one element. Another concern is a lot of these smaller rural hospitals, and we're talking they're really small. There's only maybe 20 to 30 hospital beds in the whole facility. Um, these different institutions, they weren't in the best financial shape to begin with because of the areas they serve in general. And the areas also typically have a lot of people without insurance, which means that, at least in light of COVID, there's no guarantee that all the funding they've received to help support them from the government can be reimbursed with the people that don't have insurance. So it puts them in a really interesting financial predicament. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I, I'm looking, I mean, it's just, it's just staggering when you just start actually considering these headlines. Apparently, there are 28 hospitals just in the state of Kentucky that are at mm -hmm. risk of closure. Like, I mean, you know, when you start thinking about people's access to health care, particularly, particularly in the middle of America, I mean, that's uh, that's that's really significant. Yeah. Um, it, all right, Zach, you and spell. I oh, go ahead. Yeah. You and I probably circle back around to this um, because I think this is going to have you know, this is obviously going to have effects not just for people's access to health care, but it, all these healthcare care workers uh, who would be affected with the closures of these hospitals. So let's um, let's keep teeing that conversation up. Mm hmm. Yeah. Hey, thanks as always, Zach, for joining us. That's Dr. Zach Jenkins. You can find him at Cedarville University. You can also find him on Twitter at, remind me, Farm D Hiker. And farm is like, you know, pharmaceuticals. Farm D Hiker, right? I got it yep. off the top of my head. There you go. Dr. Zach Jenkins, it. we'll talk to you next week. Thanks, man. All right. Take care. We'll be right back. So ordinarily, uh, we have Dr. Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College with us in this next segment. Uh, I got an email from him in the middle of the night that he was at the hospital, and they were suggesting to him that it might not be prudent to try to be on the air this morning. He says he feels fine, but they've kept him for observation related to some swollen lymph nodes that he has. So we want to be praying for Adam, uh, and we want to prepare ourselves to examine some of the headlines of the day. So let's, uh, let's lift up our brother Adam right now. Father, we come before you. You are the great physician. You are the one uh, who knit us each together in our mother's wombs. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. We recognize that you can touch us at the cellular level, and so we would just ask that you would do that for our brother Adam right now. We thank you um, that he is in a place where he has access to health care, and we would simply ask your uh, presence in that situation that you would bring him to complete healing and restore him, I mean, you know, selfishly to us in conversation at some point in the near future, but uh, but certainly to his wife and uh, and his home and his students. And so, Father, thank you, thank you, thank you in advance 
um, for all the ways in which you're going to bring healing and hope today into the lives of so many people, not just here, but around the world. Amen. All right, friends, we're going to take a news break, and then we'll be right back. which means it's Pastor Appreciation Month. Uh, So a little shout out to my pastor, Scott, this morning. Uh, It's just such a blessing to sit under under your pastoral leadership. We have a way at MyFaithRadio.com for you to do just what I did, and that is to show your appreciation for your pastor. You just go to MyFaithRadio.com and you click on the little cool pastor appreciation thing that is right there uh, on on the front page. And each week... Um, pastors and ministry leaders worldwide are going to not only bring forth the gospel to all of us and equip all of us as the body of Christ, but they are going to need to be then encouraged and upheld. So we're inviting you to tell us what you appreciate about your pastor and enter them into the drawing that we are having for a special pastor appreciation gift that we're going to send out. Um, I think we're doing it every single week. Every single week this month, we're going to send it, uh, send a, this gift pack out to two pastors, and there's already 10 pages of pastors who people are showing their appreciation to. So here they, here's a few of them. They're just leading the page today. And again, if you go to MyFaithRadio.com and click on that Pastor Appreciation tab, you're going to get to read all of these. Um, Tim Bastrom, shout out today. Uh, your people are saying uh, Tim is fulfilling the role of care and outreach pastor. We've been blessed as a church to be able to bless the greater community with USDA-sponsored Farmers to Families food boxes. And Pastor Tim has been heading up the distribution of the food in a great manner. Uh, So that one goes on and on. Tim, big shout-out to you. Uh, Pastor Kevin Block, your people say, you're amazing. Your dedication to the church and discipleship is outstanding. Um, That They pray that many more people will uh, will come, uh, uh, and you are particularly valued by the older members of um, of your congregation and greatly loved. Uh, and that's the Rock Point Church. We got Tim Strader, might be Streeter. Pastor Tom has been at Trinity Presbyterian Church for three years. All, he was already at the church when I was uh, when I relocated to the area. The church is Bible-based and spirit-filled. The word is taught, and I appreciate that Pastor Tom reminds us uh, often in his sermons that, quote, God loves me and there's nothing uh, I can do. So the all-sufficient grace of God being lifted up there by Pastor Tom. John Harris is lifted up. This person says, I love my pastor. He really cares about his church family and the community. He believes in getting out of the four walls of the church to love and support people. He equips the saints to do the work that we are meant to do. And he is a very humble man. That's from the Bay Harbor. I don't know. Maybe it's a community church. You know, I can't read the whole thing because I'm scrolling down the page. Roy Fruits, which, by the way, if you're going to be a pastor, Fruits is a good name to have, right? All right, you think he has all the fruits of the Spirit? We might need to interview Roy and see about his love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Anyway, it goes on. This person says, Pastor Roy is not ashamed of the Word, and we appreciate his teachings on the Bible. That's the Rock Point Church. And then one here from for um, Vidal Quevedo. Uh, this says, uh, our pastor recently retired. He's been uh, leading a bilingual evangelical free church in South Minneapolis in the Powder Horn area for 12 years. I appreciate his compassion, his good cheer, his faithfulness to the scriptures. He encourages us to be joyful and not worried about our circumstances. He also plays keyboard in the worship team. All right, Vidal, a little shout out to you as well. It goes on and on. There's 10 pages of these. I only read like half of the first page. So first of all, if you want to be encouraged that God's got good men and women out there shepherding uh, the hearts of, of believers, focused on discipleship and spiritual formation, like church is happening and, and, Everything that's happening in the world 
is not going to undo what God is doing through his church. And so let's be showing appreciation for our pastors. If you need some encouragement, just go read the pastor appreciation page. It's an encouragement to know there's so many good people out there doing so much good in so many places. Again, log on to MyFaithRadio.com and show some appreciation to your pastor today. We'll be right back. In today's culture, teens face an unprecedented access to information. Answers to any question are at our fingertips. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. We all enjoy Googling a topic when we need a solution, but there's a downside to the information age. Our kids are confused by a diversity of answers to any question. The Encyclopedia Britannica is no longer the final authority. There are thousands of sources to choose from. So teens start to wonder, which source is right? Who do I trust? My parents are only one source of wisdom. If I don't like what they say, I can find another answer. So here's the warning, Mom and Dad. Stay on your toes. Make sure you adjust to changing times in order to understand your teen. Mark Gregston has more helpful resources for you at parentingtodaysteens.org. Uh, just a minute ago, this is ordinarily the time that Dr. Adam Carrington joins us from Hillsdale College to talk through some of the political headlines of the day. Uh, Adam is in the hospital. Um, he's expected to just be perfectly fine, but they wanted to keep him for observation. And so he's not with us this morning. So let me cover some of the headlines that Adam and I were going to talk about. Um, and then I'm going to maybe introduce a couple of additional ones as well. Um Let me start with this. Just because you're reading it in a physical newspaper doesn't necessarily mean it is news. I think that's important to uh, know and recognize. The difference between news reporting, actual like reporting of the facts of a situation, um, has been really significantly muddied blurred, compromised um, by not only opinion writing that's then not called opinion writing, but analysis that is done in a way that doesn't actually just uh, analyze the facts on the face of a situation. And so because most of us rely on media that is free to us, free to us, um, so if you want to think about your news source, most people are getting their news online today, and most people are not paying a subscription fee for the sites where they are getting their news. So just think about that for a moment. If you are getting your news through some sort of source for which you do not pay, consider that someone, someone is paying for that quote unquote news to be posted because they're paying for it to reach your eyeballs. Okay. And so just think about that for just a moment. So there's actually a nationwide network of 1,300 local sites, including um, actual physical printed newspapers that are owned and operated by basically one person. Um, And obviously that one person is then only putting things on those sites or in those physical print papers that he wants promoted or advocated. And they sound like legitimate newspapers or legitimate sites. I mean, the Illinois Valley Times, uh, the North Cook News, the DuPage Policy Journal, um, on and on and on. They sound like legitimate news sources. They're actually all, they all include exactly the same content. Um, it is all produced and published by 
one um, individual's PR firm, and um, his name is is Brian Timpone. Um, And, you know, he wanted to capitalize on the decline of local news organizations. And so he built a network with the help of a lot of other people, um, including a PR firm and a really conservative um, radio personality. Uh, Not me. Um, And so they built this media effort. And it's, you know, it's very, very um, biased in one particular direction. And so I just think that you need to know that, like, right? I mean, you just you just have to recognize that news isn't necessarily news, especially especially if you are receiving it for free. Um, and so just consider that. All right. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the difference between the facts of a situation, like the facts of our experience of freedom, and the feelings that are associated um, with sort of the way information is being pressed into us. So religious freedom is the topic du jour in terms of this. So people on both the religious right and the religious left, or actually the religious right and the religious non-left, or the non-religious left, both feel like they are losing the religious liberty or religious freedom battle in the United States of America. Now, that can't be true. It can't be factually accurate that people of faith and people of no faith or people who are actually um, opposed to faith, they can't both be losing the same battle in terms of religious liberty or religious freedom in the United States. And so somebody's feelings there are uh, influencing their experience of the facts. And I'm just going to admit to you, um, I have... uh, I have fallen into this trap from time to time um, because it seems as if religious liberty is under constant threat. And that might be because it is getting an increased level of attention and actually the protections of it at a, at a legal level, by a legal standard, are greater and greater and greater. Now, that doesn't mean that experientially we're not, we don't have our feelings hurt as Christians more often in the culture. But having your feelings hurt in the culture is actually not a threat to your religious liberty or your religious freedom. And so as long as the First Amendment is the First Amendment, as long as we have guaranteed protections, and by the way, um, every time that the Supreme Court has, an op- has had an opportunity to decide a religious freedom or religious liberty related case, it has always decided in in my adult memory, it has always decided in the direction of religious liberty or religious freedom protections. Now, sometimes we see that as a threat because it's no longer exclusive or promoting of the particular faith which we express. And therein lies the rub, I think, for many of us. So let's be sure that we are judging something based on the facts of the threat to our freedom and not just the feelings associated with with the reality that fewer and fewer Americans align with active expressions of the Christian faith. So I'm saying that pretty carefully. A smaller and smaller percentage of the American population acknowledges that they are Christian, recognizes themselves, self-identify as Christians. And so what we are experiencing in the culture is not an actual loss of our legal freedoms, because that's actually been strengthened at the Supreme Court level. 
what we are experiencing is that the communities in which we live, the culture of which we are a part, is itself uh, growing more hostile to our very public expressions of our faith. That is different than your religious freedoms or your religious liberties actually being um, threatened at a legal level. So I just um, I want us to sort through the facts and I want us to sort through our feelings as we consider, you know, the headlines of the day. All right. Next up, I'm going to deal with a headline related to oh, I'm going to call it the death of classical liberalism. But that is a really fancy way of saying some people didn't like the fact that Senator Dianne Feinstein and Senator Lindsey Graham hugged it out at the end of the Judiciary Committee's uh, confirmation hearing of Judge Amy Coney Barrett. Um, people didn't like that. People, there's some people on the extreme left that did not like that Dianne Feinstein actually acknowledged uh, that you know it was a it was a fair and balanced hearing and that Lindsey Graham did a good job. Uh, so we're going to talk about the death of classic, classical liberalism and how I think we have arrived at the point where people at the extremes. It's not just about whether or not your idea wins the day. You know, best ideas win in a in a pluralistic society. But um, but they seem to be interested in actually driving the people of an opposing position um, out of the public square. And that's a very, very different conversation. So that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. This is amazing. All right. For those of you concerned about Adam Carrington, he's got you know, some kind of little health issue and they're dealing with it at the hospital and beyond that, you know, none your biz. There you go. Okay. Covered all of you on Zip Whip who want to know more about people's business than I'm prepared to share. Okay. Uh, classical liberalism. Here's a note from another listener on Zip Whip today. Uh, that's our text line. I should say it that way. Um, 877-933-2484 if you want to at me or text me. There you go. Um, This person uh, says classical liberalism has declined while tribalism has risen. It's no longer about whether the best idea wins, but whether one's own team wins. That's a very different ballgame. Yes, that's exactly right. Okay, so that's the point I'm making. So thank you, Scott, um, for uh, for making the point or getting the point that I am just about to make. So here's what happened. At the end of the Senate's Judiciary Committee confirmation hearings of Judge Amy Coney Barrett, Senator Dianne Feinstein and Senator Lindsey Graham both, you know, they kind of complimented one another. They they basically acknowledged that, you know what, um, this was um, this was a fair hearing. This was nothing nothing untoward happened, uh, and this woman and this man, both of an age, one a Democrat, one a Republican, embraced. They hugged it out with no masks on, which the outcry came in part because they hugged with no masks on. But the outcry from the extremes was, you know, there's just no way that Dianne Feinstein can can actually be a person advocating for um, women's right to choose uh, abortion at, you know, at any point um, for any reason. There's no way she can actually be aligned with, quote unquote, us if she is willing to even acknowledge the humanity, let alone the dignity and the worthy of a hugness of Senator Lindsey Graham, who is obviously on the other side of those quote unquote issues. Well, Feinstein and Graham are both um, parties to an institution where that would be the, the U.S. Senate, where 
the best idea is supposed to win. And then everybody leaves the chamber supportive of what the in, you know, what the body has decided. Now, I recognize that in our tribalistic polarized times, we don't often see that happen. But that's essentially what we saw happen at the conclusion of the Senate Judiciary Committee's uh, confirmation hearing when these two colleagues actually, you know, sort of acknowledged one another's humanity. Um, I've got a, a listener who texted in and said, I loved seeing them hug. Well, OK, I agree with that. I did, too. Um, and so um, my encouragement today is to consider the difference between presenting and defending your ideas in the marketplace of ideas today, which, by the way, as Christians, we we are called to present um the best ideas, the, the gospel ideas, the redemptive ideas, the ideas of the kingdom of heaven in the midst of the kingdoms of this world, recognizing that they're not always going to win because we don't actually yet live in the fullness of the kingdom of heaven. And so although every single day you and I are out there as ambassadors of the kingdom of heaven, as agents of grace, as representatives of Jesus Christ, I mean, let's not fool ourselves. Every single uh, person out there is not going to be you know, suddenly convinced of the veracity of our claims unless the Holy Spirit descends upon them. Like, that's how that works. So we need to be praying for the Spirit's descent. We need to be praying for, you know, the Spirit to move, uh, for God to bring revival. And in the meantime, we just keep doing faithfully what we are called to do, which is present the gospel always and in all ways. And we do so in every conversation. God has has something to say in every single conversation. And you and I are the people who he has present to make those claims, to speak those truths, to do so, recognizing the dignity of every single person, even if they don't treat us with the dignity due us as image bearers of the living God. So that that's how this works. Like you and I are out there every single day in every single environment, in every single conversation, Presenting the gospel perspective on everything, the redemptive worldview, in every situation, for every person, whether they believe it or not. And in some spaces and places and moments in time, that will actually win the day, and we will give all the glory to God and point to him. On other days, other ideas are going to win because we don't live in the midst of a fully realized kingdom of heaven yet. So... Until the day comes when every knee bows in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord, which thanks be to God, that day is coming. It's not here yet, but it is coming. Until that day arrives, you and I are going to find ourselves on the losing side of some of the debates of the day. But just because we find ourselves on the losing side doesn't actually have any influence on whether or not the claims we made are true. It's just that other people don't accept them, okay, which happened to Jesus, by the way. I mean, it, it happened to Jesus. Like, reread the Gospels a, 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 as a study of how people responded to Jesus. Just reread the Gospels and sort out how people respond to Jesus. You are going to be astounded at the number of people who, faced with the very Son of the very living God, God in flesh, responded to him by Nope, I'm sticking with the ideas I've already got. Nope, I'm sticking with the tribe I'm already with. Nope, I'm, I don't, uh, I'm not following that. And so, you know, let's not be so foolish as to imagine that we're going to, you know, do better than Jesus did. Okay, so God's going to do what God's going to do. He is working. The Holy Spirit is among us. 
The Holy Spirit is also in us. And so we want to be people who are presenting the truth of the gospel uh, in the midst of every conversation and every encounter, no matter what it is, no matter how hard it is, no matter how long it lasts, recognizing that um, we have the privilege of living in the context of a culture where the free exchange of ideas still exists. So let's be busying ourselves doing that. All right. Uh, that's my encouragement to you in in this conversation about the death of classical liberalism in our culture today. Um, it doesn't die, you know, frankly, if we keep going out there and speaking our piece. So we're going to go out there and speak our piece today. All right. We've got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. And thank you for um, for sticking with me. we got to take one more quick break. We'll be right back. All right, friends, where in the word are you today? Encouraging you to be in the word of God before you get out there into the world that God so loves. I am in Micah 6, 8. What indeed does the Lord require of us? What does the Lord require of us? But to do justice and to love mercy or love kindness and to walk humbly with our God. Maybe today, maybe today we reverse that. Let's walk humbly with God. And let's show kindness to other people. Let's be merciful. And then let's see what opportunities for justice God brings our way. There will be opportunities for you to act justly if you are walking humbly and encountering people in a spirit of merciful kindness. So let's reverse it today. Let's let's walk humbly by faith. Let's walk in the spirit, not in the flesh. Let's Walk by faith and not by sight. Let's walk humbly with God, showing mercy to other people, showing kindness to other people. And then let's just see what opportunities for justice, for action, God brings our way. We've got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.